What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Finance for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Wren. Join me as we dig into what it looks like for physicians to begin using their finances as a tool to live better lives. You can learn more about our resources at financeforphysicians.co. Let's jump into today's episode. What's up, everyone? Today, I'm talking with Dr. Michael Myers. Michael is professor of clinical psychiatry at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He is also the author of eight books covering everything from physician suicide and mental health to physician marriages. What's especially interesting to me is his 35-year stint in private practice psychiatry, the last 20 of which was spent working exclusively with physicians. All in all, Michael has a massive amount of experience and knowledge in physicians' mental health. Today, we talk specifically about physician perfectionism and how it can spill over into your personal finances. So if you're interested in taking better care of your own mental health, this episode is definitely for you. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you you wrote a great article for Psychology Today. I think you called it the tyranny of perfectionism. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh Uh-huh. And in that article, you had talked about perfectionism being a double-edged sword. Can you talk to us kind of what you meant by that? And When I wrote that article, I was referring to um, physicians, uh, which is I'm a subspecialist in physician health. And uh, as you probably know, if you're working around doctors all the time, perfectionism, that's why I think is a double-edged sword is because you need a certain measure of perfectionism to even get into medical school. You know, it's very competitive. It's always been that way. And yet, on the other hand, if you're too perfectionistic, it can work against you. So finding that middle ground, and it's never solid, it's always kind of fluid, is a, often a lifelong struggle for, for doctors. And where I come in as a psychiatrist is when and if that perfectionism has become, well, what we'd call like sort of overdeveloped or too extreme so the, the individual can't cut, cut himself or cut herself any, any slack. And then, you know, they're, they beat themselves up and they're hard on themselves and they can, they can get depressed. In the article, you talked about it being a spectrum of uh, kind of on the one end, it could be potentially considered productive, especially in medicine. I mean, the career field, it's, on the other end, it's potentially major problems. So how do you, I, I guess, how do you distinguish between healthy perfectionism and unhealthy perfectionism? Is there a perfect little, I'm sure there's not, but is there kind of a general way to do that? Your question's a very good one, and I, th- I would break that down into when and if the individual himself or herself recognizes, you know, like I strive for excellence and it's working for me. You know, I'm getting, again, I'm thinking of somebody maybe applying to medical school. You know, I'm getting the right MCAT score. I'm doing well in my volunteer work. I'm, I'm doing, you know, I did well in my SATs and my GPA is good. And so I've got the metrics So when it's that, and it seems to work for them, that it opens doors, and great. And and then then they've got to learn, and they've got to keep up. But when and if they find, though, that it just just seems to be too much, that they are finding themselves maybe, say, increasingly competitive. Say, for instance, they've been used to getting straight A's, you know, and that allows them to get into their advanced study. But yet they find they're around a lot of bright people. And they have to be able to accept, you know, maybe they're not going to be number one all the time and they're not going to, you know, win those um, academic awards and things like that. So, you know, when they can just accept, and in fact, we have this kind of notion in medicine now that counteracts the perfectionism, which is called good enough. You know, I'm a good enough doctor, meaning that I'm safe. I keep up. My patients are pleased with the care I deliver. And I'm overall like a reasonably happy camper. That would be somebody who really seems to have it in proportion. The others kind then would be when it's too much. And those are the individuals who will often seek help. If they do it voluntarily, and that those are a lot of doctors I would look after in my practice, well, they would come in and talk about that immediately. Now, sometimes, though, it wasn't that way. They were sent to me because they got into trouble at work. For instance, if they set the bar too high with everybody else, say, in the operating room, Okay, so there's that whole team. And if the surgeon, say say if it's a surgeon heading the team, cannot abide by the fact, you know, that maybe everything isn't absolutely perfect in the setup and there there isn't he or she doesn't allow any room for human fluidity or something like that, then that individual can get in trouble because they they get tense, they start to yell, perhaps, or throw something, or 
curse. And then they get in trouble for that because nobody wants to be around them. So when you talk with someone like that, they will even admit that I don't know what over, overcame me, but I just get so upset that people don't seem to care as much as I do. They're coming from a good place, it sounds like, but I mean, kind of presenting itself unhealthy. Yeah, you said it right. They are coming from a good place. They want everything to go well. They want the patient, you know, to, you know, to be properly anesthetized. They want, you know, a good, a good surgical uh, sort of result with less scarring. They don't want the under anesthesia too long. They don't want complications. All that stuff is coming from a good place. But the process, though, sometimes can be alienating of others. So I know you have a, a ton of experience working one-on-one with physicians and helping them manage their mental health. And so I'm sure, you know, perfectionism, like you're talking about now, is, it'll come up quite a bit. But I'm, I'm just curious, how common was it or is it? It's common, really, in everyone, because, you know, when I talk with medical students who have just sort of, in a sense, matriculated to medical school, you know, we always welcome them and, and tell them, you know, what it's going to be like a little bit. But one of the things that I do, again, I like to use humor because historically so often there was almost a refrain. Medical students would be welcomed and the dean or whoever was, a, you know, the first ones to greet them would say, welcome to medical school. You're the best and the brightest. Now, I don't like that. I never have. So that when I get a chance to meet with incoming medical students, I say, has anybody welcomed you to medical school and told you you're the best and the brightest? You know, and a few people kind of put up their hands, some smile, some shake their head or whatever. And I say, well, I'm here to tell you that it's not true. Now, what I mean by that, I want to welcome you're a human being. <laughs> yes, you're a human being. Because, see, what I want them to know, well, obviously, you've worked hard to be here. And congratulations. I'm glad you're here. Welcome, et cetera, et cetera. But if you keep delivering a message of, quote, unquote, you know, perfectionism, they're the best and the brightest. And when and if that individual gets a little wobbly and who doesn't, you know, at any time, it doesn't matter what course of study you're in, then they can feel somehow very quickly inferior. And that goes into something you might have heard of, Daniel, called the imposter syndrome, where the individual feels, I think they made a mistake letting me into medicine or I don't know how I made it. I wonder if maybe, you know, they got the wrong file or something like that. I really don't belong here. Everybody else is so smart. They've got everything in order and I don't, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that's usually a misperception. But yet you can see, though, how that individual is being so hard on herself or on himself. I think I've read about perfectionism and I think everybody has a little bit of it. That's kind of the interesting part about it is we all strive for perfectionism or quality work, but it seems like there's a point where it becomes like perfectionism, perfectionism of self or your identity. Almost it kind of gets wrapped up in you as a person. And that's when it seems like, obviously you can't be perfect, right? No, exactly. And, and also too, well, there's two things I want to comment on anybody who, who's, I, I've never worked with them, but anybody who's worked say with, with elite athletes, for instance, similar sort of thing where those but you can see how competitive it is now you'll hear many of them say i don't compete with others i just compete with myself now that may be in part true but even if they're doing it just with themselves yes it's important to strive for excellence and again those are the kinds of things i think that work so well for us in medicine and our patients are the benefactors of that i mean i like to believe that the doctors i go to when i'm the patient are ones that you know set the standard pretty high and that i'm going to be in safe hands, that kind of thing. But it doesn't need to be somebody who is sort of an award-winning, you know, person who's has sort of notoriety, et cetera, et cetera. I can see like as a parent, I'm thinking, you know, if I had to have one of my children get brain surgery or something, you know, serious, I'm going to think, okay, I got to find somebody that is as perfect as possible. I can see where that kind of goes that direction where it's the expectation is perfection. That's right. And you probably know there's a whole also sort of other sort of track in medicine, which is the study of error, that to error is human. We will all make mistakes in our field. Hopefully, they're largely smaller ones, that kind of thing. So you're at one level trying to prepare your students really early, early for that kind of process and to create an, an atmosphere where it's okay to fess up or to admit your mistakes. But the paradox of all of that is when medical students or residents in training argue, 
that it would be easier to be open and transparent about this if I witnessed some of this in my professors and clinical supervisors. And that's not new. In fact, you know, many of us have been preaching that for years. And until, until we open up to our students and disclose some of the mishaps or errors that we've made in our own life, et cetera, et cetera, we're not setting very good role modeling until or if we do something like that. So I've seen I've seen some research on perfectionism. It seems like it's pretty conclusive that it's it's increasing. And I was reading some they were talking about, especially the socially prescribed perfectionism. I think that's interesting. It makes sense when you kind of think about it. And I'm sure there's a bunch of like contributing factors like social media. They had kind of mentioned in the article I was reading. But if we're talking specific to um, medicine, do you think that the current training model has a negative influence on perfectionism? I think it depends. It depends where you study. And maybe the whole ethos. See, you know, as you know, so many of these things kind of start, you know, from top down or something like that. If this feels like this is largely sort of a humanistic place to study. And I'm seeing that in many of my colleagues, in the residents who teach me as a medical student or the professors that teach them, this kind of thing. That's an atmosphere where it's probably easier to sort of be less hard on oneself. I don't have my fingers on on studies about this, but sometimes people feel when they're training in an Ivy League medical center that even if it's not overt, they can still feel, though, that this is really tough. I'm just with so many accomplished people, for instance, and the expectation is so high. I'm not sure this is going to work for me, but I'm going to be able to not just survive, but thrive in this atmosphere. So I think it will depend on, on the overall setting. Sometimes it depends on the branch of medicine as well. Uh, Daniel, you may or may not know that there are three or four specialties that are right up at the top of ones that are the most competitive and hard to get into. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody in those fields are extremely competitive. It also can mean that they just also don't have a huge number of training spots for them or that perhaps there's many. Like, for instance, dermatology tends to be right at the top. And in fact, it's so hard to get into that many medical students will take a year out of medical school actually do research in dermatology. So that will give them a leg up when they complete medical training and then apply for dermatology residences. So once again, it's not just the metrics. It's a lot of other things that go into whether or not you might get accepted into that particular field. So those are just some of these, as you mentioned, some of these socially constructed things too that really can reinforce that striving for, for excellence. I could also see medicine being a career that would draw uh, someone with the perfectionist kind of underlying tendencies themselves. Someone that's excelled in school and has been very thorough and tends to get A's and does really well. And I could see that being a draw. One of the nice things I enjoy about working at SUNY Downstate in Brooklyn is that we're a state school. And so we, you know, we have applicants, of course, from all, not, not just from all over the state of New York, but also from other states as well. But, you know, there's a lot of, it's not a quota, but the vast majority of our medical students are from within state or in state, that type of thing. But what I also mean is that we also have a very diverse medical student population. And we pride ourselves on that, that we have a large percentage of African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, Indian-American medical students in training, which is very nice. I mean, you know, being in the heart of Brooklyn, we also serve a very diverse population. But what is, is nice about that is, yes, I mean, we strive for excellence as well, but it may not have quite the same tenor or tone or something as some other schools where students will fit. And this, I want to just complete this by saying one of the things I noticed, for instance, because I, I have a major position on our medical student admissions committee, which is I'm asked to interview any applicant to our medical school who has disclosed in their personal statement that they've suffered from or been treated for some type of psychiatric illness in the past. So, for instance, they might have had an anxiety disorder, PTSD, they might have had depression, an eating disorder, 
perhaps substance use disorder, things like that. You know, because I'm I'm the only clinical psychiatrist on the committee, so it's only proper that I would interview these people. So I enjoy doing this because, see, these are individuals who have actually made a very courageous decision to disclose that in their application because, as you maybe infer, many students with that history would not do that because they would afraid that that's too self-sabotaging. So when I interview these students, it's so interesting not only to pick up their courage, but also when they say this to me, that I, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but they'll say, you know, I decided that by disclosing this, if a school that I apply to feels that this is too much for us, this is too hot to handle, and throws my application in the wastebasket, then I don't want to study medicine there. Yeah, that's great. That's a, such a good example of someone that is being human and vulnerable. and Absolutely. Because these same students, Daniel, will say, I like to believe that this will make me a better doctor. I know what it's like to be a patient. I know what it's like to be vulnerable. I also am perceptive of how doctors have treated me as a patient. And largely that's been positive because that's why and how I got interested in becoming a doctor myself. It's very nice to hear that in a young applicant. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that one of the, on the other side of the spectrum, the people that uh, have had that and don't disclose it, I think that's kind of gets into the issues that start to show themselves with perfectionism. Most people think that's a negative to disclose that. I think it's a positive because it's showing that they're vulnerable and human. But if we start to look at perfectionism specifically in some of the negative things that start to kind of crop up in someone's life, what are some of those kind of everyday things that start to pop up? So, for instance, what somebody might notice earlier when I was saying you know, they have trouble cutting themselves slack is that it's taking them longer, for instance, to prepare for exams than it would normally take. Or they worry more about exam results while they're waiting to get the results. Or say they've already finished and they're practicing medicine, they begin to doubt themselves, for instance, and they have to go and check their notes, they have to check on the prescription, make sure that it was filled out accurately. And they end up maybe having to stay later and they get tired. And then the repercussions of that is either they have no life whatsoever outside of medicine, or if they already do have a life, then their spouse and kids feel pretty shortchanged because they're hardly seeing their physician parent or physician spouse. And when I talk with somebody like that and I listen to some of the things that they're having to do because they're, they've become so uncertain about their their competence and confidence that I, I mean, I'm usually able to pick up. They've actually got an unrecognized depression going on. I can just see how weary they are. And usually they're relieved to come and talk with someone about that because they feel so alone. Daniel, you may or may not know that there's that enormous uh, stigma in the house of medicine. It's better than it used to be, but for many, many students training and doctors who are completed training, it's very, very hard for them to go for professional help. Once they go and derive benefit from it, and that's another matter. Some of them will even openly then sort of, quote unquote, come out about that. But even then, still many won't because they're, you know, they're, it's, first of all, it's a personal thing. But secondly, they're afraid of judgment. And we can maybe get into this later if you like. But they worry about the implications of this for their medical license for their credentialing applications to medical centers after training, malpractice insurance, all those sorts of things begin to prey on them and they feel, I better just be silent about this. Yeah, and I think that sometimes what you see as a third party or a friend is different than what's going on in their head. So if you could kind of peek into the, I'm curious to the mindset, like what is the mindset of the perfectionist, where it's starting to cause problems. What are they thinking? Like, what's their concerns? Like, what? why are they doing what they're doing? Or I'm curious what their mind is, how their mind is working. Yeah, it would be sort of a sense of having, as I was kind of alluding there with sort of a clinical example, of having to spend sort of an inordinate amount of time sort of getting it right. Intense desire to get it, must get it right. Yes, without realizing that maybe, like maybe this is okay, you know, or it is okay to sort of leave at the end of the day with some things undone. And many walks of life, 
you can never get every you know everything done in your working day. So so many people they have to learn even about limit setting. If I could just use one example, like for instance, of continuing medical education. Not only is that sort of good medical practice, but it's one of our core competencies that we basically remain students our entire professional life. But yet you hear people say, you know, this is really wearing me down. I can't keep up with the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and then my specialty journals and stuff like that. And, you know, my wife got so upset with me when we went on vacation because I packed a whole carry-on bag of dated things. And she, she said, why aren't you reading, you know, sort of an adventure novel or something or some fiction? Take, or, take a break. <laughs> take a break from it all. And, and, you know, he says, yeah, I think you're right, but I just feel that, that I've got to keep up. i got to keep up, that sort of thing. So it takes a person a while to just accept that you can never know it all and that you are entitled to a vacation. The so-called guilty pleasure. You know, why should a doctor feel guilty if when they go to the hair salon, if they're, if they're looking at psychology today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know where I publish. <laughs> <laughs> so if it's i think the issue it seems like is in getting help that's interesting that it's such a difficult thing it seems like it's built into this is that it's difficult to ask for help or get help and that's going to make it even more more difficult but what happens if someone doesn't seek help at all does it sometimes you know self-resolve does it always get worse does it i mean is it i'm sure it has a varying yeah, very good question. Sometimes it does self-resolve and goes away, and that may be it. Uh, other times may come back. And so, for instance, that's one of our, you know, the cardinal things that we do in assessing somebody in a sort of intake interview or consultation is not only sort of get the lay of the land of what's going on right now, but inquire into whether or not they've experienced anything like this before. And so we routinely do that. And so in my case, it wouldn't be unusual at all for somebody to say, well, you know, I had something like this a bit when I was in medical school, but I didn't know what it was. I, you know, my girlfriend and I had broken up. And so I thought, well, just maybe it's that or whatever. But, you know, I took the telephone off, off. I didn't answer my cell phone. It went on for almost two weeks and I wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping very well. You know, I wasn't suicidal. But it, it kind of just resolved itself, and then I bounced back, and away I went. So, you know, we pay attention to things like that, that maybe they did have something earlier that was triggered, you know, by a loss. And so we want to kind of pay attention to that. And so we deal with the stuff on the surface, which is getting the person to feel better again, and then maybe later then looking at their personality makeup. And this is often where psychologists come in that can be so helpful with their training and especially you probably heard of cognitive behavior therapy, CBT. And that's just one type of a psychological therapy that can be very helpful uh, for individuals who do have sort of a lot of perfectionistic traits. Again, not that something can, can be completely you know, sort of removed or something, but it's to help the person, uh, you know, kind of pull those things and, and feel okay about that. They'll be fine. You know, their patients will be fine. You know, they'll still be a good doctor, et cetera, et cetera. I wanted to get into some of the financial kind of bleed over from perfectionism and how that kind of might show up. And I thought maybe we could talk through just kind of some general scenarios and, and maybe we can just kind of get your take on each of those. That sound good? Mm, that sounds fine. Okay. So let's say like I'm new in practice. I'm, I'm just getting started and my specialty is kind of like that's my thing. I've been in training for years. I'm extremely good at it, but I have a lot of financial obligations. Maybe it's student loans. Maybe it's, maybe I have a, a family to, to take care of. And I feel like I gotta, I gotta work extra shifts to support the family to the point maybe where I don't even see them at all, but I gotta do it. I mean, that I gotta support my family, but my spouse says like, I need to take a break but they don't really understand me and it's starting to cause problems. What would you say in that situation? Is that, could that be perfectionism? Is it? Oh yeah, that's part of it. And then one of the things that you probably know really working in the field that you do is that one of the best pieces of advice that we can ever give in medicine to a new graduate is to get a financial counselor advisor or something like that. It's the rare physician who's gifted at that. 
And I say rare because there are some individuals who come into medicine with a degree in economics or in business or they've left Wall Street <laughs> and and decide to do a postback and become a physician, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But most doctors either don't have a, a huge skill set in money management. Some feel badly about that. Others don't. They say, look, at, I prefer to devote my time to a bunch of other things anyway, you know, staying abreast in medicine or have other hobbies, that sort of thing. So that's another reason why somebody has to cultivate a relationship with a financial counselor who they respect and, you know, admire that sort of thing. That scenario, though, that you described is very common in what we call the early career physicians. And they're usually two, because when they finish, as you, you're, again, you're probably aware, the average debt that today's graduate has is, it changes, but I think it's around a quarter of a million dollars, something like that. It's very high. So many physicians feel, well, I've got to start you know, working on that debt. I've got to get rid of it, that sort of stuff. Uh, and if they're a high, if they're in a high earning profession, in fact, just to take a step back, there are physicians, for instance, who would actually their first love is maybe in a in a branch of medicine that isn't as lucrative. But because of their high debt load or whatever, and the fact that they want to get that reduced quickly, they decide against whatever that first love was and then go into a field that pays better. Now, that actually may work quite nicely, but unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't. So anyway, to make a long story short, then, as you mentioned, that scenario is not uncommon where then the person then begins to do some extra shifts. It's very seductive, you know, because you start making big bucks often very quickly. The downside of that, though, is sometimes an inflated sense of self that can really worry the spouse. So, for instance... Let's say the spouse is a woman and she's feeling like, look at, I'm glad you're, but you're making money. But I think you're also spending too much. When you say that you can afford a Maserati, yes, on paper you can, but I'm not sure that you should be doing that. I'm not sure that's going to make you that happy. So anyway, to get back to this, what I used to see in my practice so much is a lot of marital unhappiness because of the fact that the physician partner, and sometimes it's both, if it's a dual doctor couple, sometimes both of them are working like that. Now, if they've got extended family who are running the house, looking after the kids, or paid help, a nanny, au pair, or something like that, that can all work out. But sometimes, though, they can end up just feeling on a treadmill and that they become strangers. So all of that has to be carefully balanced, and they may need to kind of begin to realize those debts at a slower pace. And, and just, again, to have some downtime and time with time with their spouse and time with their children if they have kids. Yeah, the, the job is, you know, you're good at. It's easy. It's not easy. It's just it's something you're going to get rewarded for, and you can do great work. Um, but the family, the, all the stuff at home is complicated. I can see where that would be for a hyper perfectionist. It could be something potentially even that they procrastinate uh, subconsciously. Work has the allure of, of perfection. Yes, that's right. And, and they also may feel that they're getting you know, a lot of well, points or a lot of affirmation uh, outside the home. For, you know, they're getting promoted at work or they're getting a fat paycheck. Their patients love them. They got this waiting list. They're beginning to see perhaps international patients or all that sort of. And they so they come home and they say, "Why does you know? Why do my wife and kids just kind of like make fun of me or yell at me or something?" And it's it's only because they really just want the person to be human, right? It's like you know, can you screw up? <laughs> I've read that um, keeping up with the Genesis is potentially linked to perfectionism. Have you seen that, or is that? Absolutely. Far too often, far too often where doctors are too busy sort of comparing. They may have it wrong, but they're comparing how much they're making with somebody else they trained with or somebody else they work with. And they're trying to figure out, what am I doing wrong? You know, that I don't seem to have this. I don't seem to have that. I mean, you know, as well as I do, that it's not all in possessions, that individuals could be living a very different life at home or their priorities are set differently in household A and household B, that sort of thing. 
But this is, I think, one of the downsides. You know, one of the not so nice things about medicine is there is that in certain segments or certain sectors or certain doctors, too much effort to kind of, you know, compete with each other, keep up with the Joneses. I think the wise physician basically disputes that and say, look, I'm not going to get caught up in that. I don't have to live in such a neighborhood, for instance. I want to be in a decent neighborhood. I want good schools for the kids. But it doesn't have to be that neighborhood that is colloquially often called Pill Hill. I was talking with um, a financial therapist recently. So I thought that that's an interesting field that's kind of developed is the combination of money and therapy. But they're very busy. There's a lot of people that need need help there as well. But you had mentioned earlier stigma and that being a big hurdle in medicine. I think paradox is like that they part of this symptom of, of this is that they are going to be resistant to, to seeking help when at the same time they might need help more than anybody else. So f- say it's in the financial realm, like they have maybe a just kind of a deep underlying issue of maybe it was from their childhood. They had their parents didn't do well with money or they had some uh, money issues and or money control stuff. And that's kind of caught cropping up in their life. How do you deal with that? Like what what's the um, yeah, Daniel, that's a good question, because you can see the full gamut, by the way. You can see individuals who actually grew up in homes where they had nothing. And so therefore, to be doing extremely well is very gratifying, you know, because they'll say that, look, I'm why this is so important to me is that I refuse to go back to, you know, having sort of, you know, hunger in my belly or something like that, or the neighborhoods that I grew up with in were so dangerous or whatever. I'm never going back to that neighborhood again, that sort of thing. So that would be ones who are kind of really striving to be for a higher socioeconomic level. But often those those individuals tend to be more moderate. I think sometimes a more complicated one is, is when doctors have come from privilege. And so they felt like, I have to maintain this, if not do better. And that can be extremely difficult. That the world was different, for instance, when their mother and father were coming of age or something like that. They may not be able to live in the same, afford to live in the same neighborhood and that sort of thing. And that should be fine, that kind of thing. And, you know, this is when it, it can get very philosophical, like in terms of, you know, what does money mean anyway? And when is sort of just enough enough? I think when both members of the couple are congruent on that axis, that's when you have the makings of an extremely rich and I well rich and I would say kind of healthy couplehood and then and then family because they really have similar aspirations and if they're a bit dissimilar they're not so dissimilar that they can't you know compromise and and sort of you know work it out with each other going back to the uh, applicants that that you see that have kind of uh, acknowledged their flaw or prior issue or whatnot. How do, how does someone, maybe you get it. Maybe you're like, Oh yeah, this makes, this makes sense. I need to start doing a better job embracing my imperfection. How would somebody do that? I'm going to connect that with something which would be maybe I'm going to use the term vulnerability. See, because I think when a, when a physician can accept, again, we use the term humanness earlier, humanness, vulnerability, that they have to pay attention to them, to themselves, their physical self, their psychological self, their spiritual self, their emotional self. When they can do that and see how much they can actually work and still feel well, then great. And they aim for a balanced life. That will all work out nicely. But when and if people can't do that or they refuse to accept just sort of normal human vulnerabilities or limitations, that's when it gets really hard. And physician patients of mine like that, often I had to kind of work with them over time, for instance, you know, that in order to get them to just really slow down a bit and to take care of themselves and to take care of their of their families. Or if if it hadn't worked out and if there was they were in the middle of a big divorce, but they were beginning to to date again, again I'd have to say, look and give yourself some time. You know, you're still grieving. You're not going to make a good choice if you've still got residual from your first marriage. You know, just give yourself time. Take it easy so that you don't get into some sort of a maybe similar but also 
dissimilar entanglement. And so, I mean, that's at one level where the stigma comes in. But another level, when physicians begin, those physicians who kind of talk with each other like that. So say if those are the kinds of doctors that you hang around with or kind of work with, that's good because every so often you'll, you'll hear of physicians being recruited to a particular clinic, for instance, where everybody is kind of holistically oriented. In other words, yeah, they care about the bottom line, but it's not a factory. It's not a treadmill. And people are making decent livings, but they also have a built-in perhaps sabbatical every five years, or they've certainly got built-in vacation time so that they don't feel guilty taking vacation, or they don't feel that they're losing money while they're on vacation because they're not seeing patients or something. No, that, that shouldn't be. You should be able to have vacation. That's something we see working with our clients is in when they're interviewing with practices. I try to encourage them to focus more on the people. The numbers are all you know important, but I would put the people as number one. Like, what are they like and what are their personal lives like? Do they have good, happy, are they happy people? Do they have happy people around them? I think that's a much better indicator of if it's a good fit. I mean, if, if you want to be happy, which, you know. Daniel, what you just said is basically identical to what we say to our our senior residents as they prepare for their next job when they graduate. You know, so they're the psychiatrists who are going out, they're going into their first job and they're doing interviews. We say the same things because I said, look, you're going to be lured by big bucks. You're going to be offered money like you have never seen. But like, as you said, look around though. First of all, what is their commitment rate? I mean, are there any doctors there any longer than a year, for instance, or something like that, that kind of thing? because they're not happy? What's the turnover rate? And what's the lifestyle like for those doctors who have been there for a while? Talk with them and make sure they're being honest with you, things like that, to see, hmm, that looks like where I would like to be 10 years from now. Yeah. And maybe if you're trying to work on being more vulnerable, the temptation is to kind of be around people just like you, but maybe you look for people that are more like that, like that. I, I remember there's, I think Jim Rohn has a quote. He says, you're the average of your five best friends. So you're going to be spending a lot of time at work. So you really got to think about what they're like as people, because it's going to rub off on you. That's right. See, I, I look for language, for instance, like if they use the word vulnerable, I want to make sure they're using it sort of in a good way and don't equate vulnerability with weakness. Because see, despite the fact that we have had gender parity in medicine now for, I would say, almost 30 years. You know, when I started out long before that, where there are very few women in medicine. Okay, so now we're 50-50. Despite that, medicine is still pretty macho. It's not like it was, but it still is very much that way. So again, it's got to do with, you know, like if a doctor is leaving work at 3 p.m., that should be okay without a colleague saying, knocking off early today, or are you feeling sick? or something, when all he said, no, I've just decided to go home and spend some time with my wife. Yeah, I could see where the people say that's that's weak. That's, come on, pick up the slack, buddy. <laughs> so what if it's my spouse? I could see that um, sometimes the people around you are the best people to call you out. So let's say I'm the spouse of someone that has just classic, I mean, they have no faults, or at least they're not admitting their faults. They're kind of gravitating towards these symptoms of perfectionism. If I'm the spouse of someone like that and I want to try to help them out, what what would you suggest to them? That's not an easy task, for instance, because often they'll kind of defend it in a sense because they're so accomplished. But again, I think think instead of being sort of critical of this book, I think they have to speak from their heart. They'll say, well, yes, but I'm lonely. I don't see you enough. And when I do, I find you preoccupied. You refuse to turn off your cell phone, your iPhone, your pager or whatever when we have dinner together. And it's just the two of us out in a restaurant. You know, I want you to turn it off, not put it not put it on the table because you get distracted. You're kind of looking for the next text message or email or whatever. That doesn't make me feel very good. I don't feel very important to you. And please don't say, but don't I give don't don't I aren't I responsible, though? And, you know, our kids are in private school. And 
you know, you dress nicely and, you know, I don't beat you or, you know, whatever. This kind of stuff. <laughs> isn't, isn't that good enough? Yeah, isn't that good enough? So, no, I'm very, very lonely. And see, when there's a crisis then, this is when often I would come in as a marital therapist, is when she falls in love with her tennis instructor. And then all hell breaks loose. And so next thing you know, she and her husband are in my office because he's absolutely devastated and furious and sad. And she's confused and didn't do this on purpose. Wasn't willful or deliberate. She was just lonely. Somebody paid her some attention. So it sounds like lesson number one is if you're the spouse trying to help your perfectionist spouse is to say something about it in a loving manner and not do nothing or just... And then number two, if you're the perfectionist spouse or a spouse with an issue, listen to your spouse and then maybe get help. Yes, exactly. And some of the things that I would do to so much of my work with couples was really very, very basic. You know, like the homework I would give them sometimes would be just talking to each other at the end of the day, if that was possible, even for a half hour after the kids have gone to bed or if the kids are in their rooms, again, with the TV off, all of the electronic devices turned off. And if possible, to actually be outside and in motion, going for a walk, for instance, over it's the weekend, you know, going for a bike ride together and not in tandem, but beside each other, you know, just away from the pressures and responsibilities. That old thing about take time to smell the roses, it's so true as a, as a metaphor. And that's why so often people do change very much so when they're on vacation. It's a tough time, but also in a, like I have young kids, I have three young kids. And the combination of the times and then the life stages, it's a kind of a tough period. And I can see in medicine, it could get compounded, the workload combined, especially in training and then combined with potentially the financial pressure of student loans and that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you got to kind of turn everything off. That's the hard part, right? Yeah. The other thing too, Daniel, I'll kind of maybe use you as an example of, of say, a married person with three kids. One of the things that I would try to work when I'm working with a couple would be, first of all, largely to compliment them on their co-parenting because they are very busy usually co-parenting. And I said, you know, the key to co-parenting working well, though, is when you have time though, just for the two of you as a dyad, because if you're not happy with each other, yes, you can get your needs met through the kids. But as you know, our kids are really just with us on loan. If we do it right, I mean, they will graduate, they will go away and that sort of stuff. And that's the so-called empty nest, you know, at that time, often where the two parents do need to face each other. So I say, look, at, don't set yourself up for a barren time. While you're raising your beautiful kids, you know, you're going to have to be very organized, but make sure that you get out, if you can, at least once a week, if not a, every two weeks, where you get a sitter or if you, if you have a family member, and the two of you go out somewhere, even if your budget is tight, I would say to them, look at then spend the money on the babysitter and then just go sit on a park bench and talk or pick a, you know, pack a lunch or something, go on a picnic or something like that. Just that, so that you can have some one on one time together and talk about, you know, why you are together and the things that are working nicely, because it's those are those are very busy years. You know, there's a lot of responsibilities and often the child rearing years correspond with you know, with practice building years too in whatever field you're in. The children nowadays, there's this pressure to have your children in everything and activities and going back to perfectionism. It's like we're recreating this wheel. It's like my kids must be perfect as well. And so that makes it even harder. But you, at the end of the day, you got to pull the plug on some of these activities. What's most important? Is it your marriage first or is it your children's activities first? Um, I think that's the question that to ask. And time is not unlimited. That's right. See, when people have a solid marriage, though, and they've never lost sight of that, it's amazing what they can do with that. I've looked after so many couples that I would say they've been to hell and back. It's unbelievable stuff that they have survived. Now, they will look at you and they'll say, look, it hasn't been easy. You know, losing our firstborn, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, these tragedies sometimes that they have come through. But they say at the end of the day, though, you know, we really we really never lost sight of each other and, you know, what brought us together in the first place. And I would do a lot of that work. Sometimes if I had a couple opposite man, all they're doing is sort of sniping at each other. I said, look, I'm going to take you in a different direction. Tell me about your first date. And they say, what? 
That was 19 years ago. I said, tell me about your first date. Now, mostly, mostly that was nice. Every so often, though, again, this is where humor comes in. Rarely it's a, our first date was just like this. <laughs> You're like, uh-oh. <laughs> I know. And I say, and, you know, they laugh and I laugh. And they say, well, maybe not quite like this. But we're both feisty or something. I said, that's okay. But you might have found He's that. He's always been a jerk. <laughs> yes. And she's always been, you know, like a hot wife or something like that, whatever it might be. But they found that, though, endearing in each other. They kind of, you know, they were kind of drawn to that. So I said, so tell me about that. What is it about that that stance or that attitude, you know, that, you know, that brought you together? And because I want to I want to figure out what's left there in order to work on, you know, and keep you together, that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think it's it's imper- imperfection. And there's this so much drive to be perfect and material and and job and these external things. But at the end of the day, it's like, and having a, a spouse that can call that out. That's why the marriage, I think, is a, one of the core things. And friends are core. If you have good people in your life that can... My wife's a caller. She'll call you out, which is a blessing and pain, painful at the same time. But she'll knock you and tell you the truth. But I'm hard-headed, so I need to hear the truth. But having people in your life is huge like that. See, just those two things that you just said about yourself and about your wife... See that, that? See that's an example there, though, of people speaking, you know, just, like, just a little bit openly about themselves. So, look at this is the way I am. This is the way we are, or whatever. And I think what you're saying, I would rather my wife be like this than be passive aggressive. You know, she's always smiling and always nice. Yeah, <laughs> but, there's a pressure cooker going. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. Well, as we wrap up, do you have suggestions for? either books or resources if, if, if somebody wants to either kind of learn about having a better marriage or working on their perfectionism or... Let me make a couple of comments. Dan, you mentioned at the beginning about the books I've written. The two, I think, that are most relevant to what we're talking about here are... And these are books that I wrote some time ago. One is on doctors' marriages, and the other one is on... It's called How's Your Marriage, a book for men and women. And in that book, I really emphasize the sexual differences between men and women, the way we communicate, because there are some differences. Now, those books have been out there for a while, but there's so many things that are available currently. And I always tell people that it's a good idea to just go on the Internet. You know, back in the days when we had brick and mortar stores, people would go to Barnes and Noble or to Borders and just sort of browse that section. But nowadays, so much of that is online. There are also services and things that are offered you know, through the various medical associations too, things about, you know, married to doctors or things like that that are also kind of out there for couples who are contemporary, especially ones raising children in some commonly encountered, things like that. Those can all be accessed online too. What I think is important is the process so that when both individuals sort of embark on that discovery together and will even kind of review some of the things that have been written, you know, and just the basic things in communication as golden right there, because too often I would see it as very lopsided that it was the woman who was reading. She'd read an article. She would highlight it in yellow and then she would put it on his pillow in the bedroom and he would go to bed and it would sort of he might see it and it would just end up on the floor. So then you'd have to say, did you read that article? Said, oh, I just thought that was something that the kids left on. I said, no. You know, where is it? Uh, you know, what, am I supposed to read it or something? See, stuff like that just then drives her up the wall, you know, that sort of thing. There, there has to be a shift. There has to be effort on the part of the person to do that. And for many physicians, that just doesn't come naturally. You know, they just feel that I'd rather be reading the New England Journal of Medicine than having a happy marriage, even though I want a happy marriage. Yeah, I don't know. How do you deal with that? Okay. Well, then usually, though, what I would do sometimes is I would just have to sort of prescribe something. You know, I'm the doctor looking after these two. I'd say to him, look, I want you to read this one article between now and next week. That's all you have to do. What's a good way to find a third party for help? Should you go to a counselor first? Do you if I'm if I, you know, want help from a third party? um, I've tried the articles. Nothing's working. We got problems. The best way to do that, I always is, is sometimes by word of mouth especially if you've got any friends or family members who have gone 
to some particular individual and I found that person helpful. Now, if you don't have that, then sometimes people access those things through the primary care physician who may actually use those resources. The other thing, too, is the American Association of Marriage and Family Therapy. They have a whole, what I would call a resource base of individuals who have met, you know, met the requirements of membership of that national organization. You mentioned earlier psychology today. There's all kinds of individuals who advertise as well and, and the kinds of work that, that they do. So there's a lot that can be found on the internet, but I know that sometimes people are wary, you know, and that's when, that's why I mentioned word of mouth. If there's somebody, other people who take it quite seriously will actually sort of call somebody up and actually interview them. And if the person is very professional, they will take that phone call and they'll say, you know, in addition to my website, I'd like to, I'd like to try to answer your questions. And when and if they take the time to do that, you could imagine then that that's going to perhaps endear them to this couple that's a little bit nervous. It's kind of intimidating going to somebody and uh, pouring your heart out. It's, it's, in fact, in my teaching of doctors on this subject, I say, you know, for many people, it's a bit easier to go on a one-on-one to a therapist than it is to go to a couple's therapist because when you're one-on-one, you can kind of lead, in a sense, what you talk about, you know, you can kind of censor, I'm not quite ready to go there yet, maybe next week, maybe as I get to know this therapist better. Whereas with a couple therapist, you never know what your spouse might say or throw out there. And that's why I was always very sensitive to that, Daniel, that I would look and said, you know, do you feel embarrassed about what your wife just said? And he'd say, absolutely. I don't, you know, this is our first visit, Dr. I don't know you at all. And, you know, you know, after she just said what she did, I'm afraid you're going to judge me. Awesome. Well, Michael, I really appreciate you sitting down with me talking through this. This has been super helpful. So where can people find out uh, more about you and your books that you've written? Yeah, it's probably best to go to my website, www.michaelfmyers.com. And in addition to, you know, sort of books and stuff there, I got a lot of podcasts and webinars and things like that that sometimes people are interested in as well and other you know, other recommendations and resources there. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll definitely link to all of that in the show notes. And Awesome. Great. Well, good, good talking with you on this. And um, thank you for having me, Daniel. It's been nice to talk with you. Definitely. As always, thank you so much for joining us today. If you found this valuable, please give us a review on iTunes and share with a friend. Also, check out our website at financeforphysicians.co for all sorts of additional content. See you next time. Finance for Physicians is not an investment, tax, legal, or financial advisor. All content included in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial tax or legal advice. Material presented is believed to be from reliable sources and no representations are made by Finance for Physicians as to another party's informational accuracy or completeness. All information or ideas provided should be discussed in detail with an advisor, accountant, or legal counsel prior to implementation. If you don't have an advisor or would like a second opinion, feel free to check out our website for recommended advisors.